Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Last Friday, in his first public comment since the Supreme Court eliminated the constitutional right to abortion, Chief Justice John Roberts defended the court's legitimacy and emphasized the court's role as interpreter of the Constitution free from political influence. It's a theme the chief has returned to time and time again, here in remarks at the University of Minnesota Law School in October of 2018. We do not speak for the people, but we speak for the Constitution. Our role is very clear. We are to interpret the Constitution and laws of the United States and ensure that the political branches act within them. But this term has been transformational for the court. With the abortion decision wreaking political and legal chaos, a decision expanding gun rights that reversed New York's century-old law, another restricting the authority of the EPA to combat climate change, and decisions further eradicating the line between church and state. Joining me is constitutional law scholar Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Polls do show that public confidence in the court is at an all-time low. So should the Chief Justice be concerned about people questioning the court's legitimacy? The Chief Justice should be concerned about the legitimacy of the court, and I believe that he's generally concerned about it, and he has staked much of his reputation as Chief Justice on upholding the legitimacy of the court. But I think he is also partly to blame for the dip in court popularity and for the faith in the court as well. His vote carries no more weight than any of the other justices. Explain why you think he's partly to blame for the dip in confidence in the court. Well, there are a number of things that the court has done, and obviously not all of his doing. Every time there is an era of politicization, people look at the court and say it's more political because people see rifts all the time. And of course, he can't do anything about the rifts between the conservatives and the liberals. But in many cases, he has seemingly tipped the court by trying to take cases that they don't have to take in order to reach certain principles by not being consistent in methodology. And those types of moves that he probably can control undermine the legitimacy of the court. And of course, the most in everybody's mind is the abortion case. He would have upheld Roe versus Wade, but limited it. He couldn't control the court and the court pushed it back. And there's other cases where precedents seem to be willy-nilly transcended by the court because the court wants to basically put their own stamp on the law and not be concerned with reliance interests and not be concerned with looking like an incremental court. 
You mentioned precedents, and the court seems to be changing the law, not respecting precedent. And the chief justice was in the majority in the opinions that struck down New York's 100-year-old gun law, the case limiting the EPA's ability to address climate change, the cases breaking down the wall between church and states, voting rights cases. He's in the majority in all those cases. He is. And those cases and others, I think, suggest quite clearly that the court is concerned with, again, having their moment in history as opposed to being conservative in the old-fashioned sense of moving incrementally of moving carefully. And I'll just give you one example of the Chief Justice as well. He has tried to impose a robust view of a unitary or strong chief executive under Article 2 of our Constitution on the country. And he's done so in the face not only of precedent, but in the face of even history and in the first Congress, because the first Congress created many structures that were not unitary. And so for him to say that he's an originalist and believes and cares about what the Constitution says and how the first Congress implemented it flies in the face of what he does as chief when he writes the cases. So that is just one other example of how it's difficult to put this idea of legitimacy and carefulness and we're at as a court, not as a policymaking body, when so many of those cases that you've mentioned, as well as the unitary executive, seem to be policy-oriented judgments. He said that if the court doesn't retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, I'm not sure who would take up that mantle. You don't want the political branches telling you what the law is, and you don't want public opinion to be the guide of what the appropriate decision is. That seems true, but short-sighted. It's true, right? I mean, there is an incredible role for the court and an important role for the court in our fabric, and it's basically occupied a critical role at various times in our history. So no one can really dispute what the chief justice says, but then he should try to work harder with his own opinions and with the opinions of his fellow conservative justices to try to uphold those ideals. There's not a consistency in ideology. There's not a consistency in the cases they take. One of the cases you mentioned earlier, which was the climate change case. In that case, they decided to resolve a case when the Biden administration had already said, we're not going to enforce the rule. There was nothing for the court to do except take this case in order to articulate a principle limiting congressional delegations of authority to affect climate change. So they reached out when they shouldn't have to take a case. And that suggests in the public mind they're out there picking and choosing cases in order to, again, affect their own policy view of the Constitution and statutory landscape. So he's part to blame. Besides not voting with the conservatives in those cases, what else can he do? Because with the three Trump appointees on the court, there's such a solid, super conservative majority. Absolutely. And as I said, this is not entirely lay at the chief justice's um, doorstep because there's some things you can do, but not a lot when there's such deep political divides on the court. But what he could do was docket control. I think many people would say that he can help set the agenda for the court by deciding which cases to take and whether to take cases on the so-called shadow docket or not. And both in the shadow docket and in the West Virginia climate control case that we just talked about, he has willingly decided to take cases that a truly conservative court in the historical sense wouldn't have taken. And that, again, has fueled this notion that court is not trying to make incremental change, but making dramatic change. So that is one way that I think and many others think that he could stop the drift. 
And, of course, his own opinions are not methodologically consistent either. And that would be another way to stop the drift. It only takes four votes to take a case. So how can he stop four of the justices from voting to take a case? Right. Right. He can't unilaterally, but he has does have a lot of influence. And it's much easier to persuade a fellow justice not to take a case or to wait for a term or two until you take a case than it is to persuade a fellow justice to vote a particular way, as evidently he tried to do very assiduously, but unsuccessfully in the Dobbs abortion case as well. So I think that he has more influence, in other words, in trying to push his conservative justices a certain way in terms of establishing a docket for the court than he does in actually influencing the opinions. I mean, you wouldn't want the chief justice to be able to tell other justices how to vote. And even though he's clearly tried from (laughs) all reports, but, you know, on the other hand, I think we have to allow him to do what he can, which at least is to shape at the margins the kinds of cases that the court will hear. And the court has been very dramatic in trying to add cases that it is interested in into the docket, even if they otherwise are not appropriate for review. We're seeing that next term, they're taking affirmative action cases. They're taking a case that could change the way the state courts supervise elections. So next term, it seems like it's going to be just as controversial as this term. Absolutely. And there's also more cases dealing with the president's unitary executive authority as well. And the independent state legislature doctrine case that you mentioned has a incredible potential for changing sort of the fairness of federal elections across the whole country, because in that case, he's looking at a doctrine that has never been articulated before and was signaled in the shadow docket case that the court wanted to hear challenges based upon the independent state legislature doctrine, which again limits the authority of state courts to tell state legislatures that they err in trying to create districts and methodologies for federal elections. So those are just examples of what's in store for us, but examples, again, of how the court has, again, not all Chief Justice Roberts' fault, but the court has signaled that it wants to hear certain type of cases. And in areas of affirmative action, Chief Justice Roberts has long been an opponent of affirmative action, so he's probably been a supporter of taking the Harvard case and the North Carolina case. And in terms of the unitary executive, he's long been a supporter of the unitary executive. So there is a case on the docket right now, at least one, that implicates the removal authority of the president. So, you know, I think that, yes, I do believe he totally is sincere in his belief in the importance of an independent and respected judiciary. But I think he could do more to try to use whatever power and influence he has, both to persuade others on the court to go more slowly, but also that he should himself. There's been a lot of criticism of Justice Thomas for not recusing himself from cases where his wife has or could have a connection. Can the chief do anything about that? The difficulty confronting Chief Justice Roberts is while there have been calls for recusal of Justice Thomas because of his wife's involvement in the insurrection on January 6th, that he has steadfastly refused to allow an ethical code to be imposed by Congress on the Supreme Court. And those two things don't sit well together, right? He should take some kind of action, whether it's adoption or changing of that ethical code to apply, because while I don't think that Justice Thomas's wife's involvement in January 6th should force Thomas to resign necessarily, it should force him to recuse himself in cases relating to that matter. And so far, for what we know, Justice Roberts has kept his silence. 
Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes where one doesn't know, but certainly Jenny Thomas's involvement at January 6th, again, it's just another thorn in the side of legitimacy of the court. So just three days after the Chief Justice's comments, Justice Elena Kagan gave a very different opinion on the court's last term and its legitimacy. In remarks at the Temple Emanuel L. Stryker Center in New York, Kagan warned that the Supreme Court can lose legitimacy by disregarding precedent. The years' worth and generations' worth of judges who have come before you and have laid down legal principles step by step by step, piece by piece. They deserve respect. And it's a way to ensure that people see courts not as political actors, because if one judge dies or leaves a court and another judge comes in and all of a sudden the law changes on you, what does that say? You know, that just doesn't seem a lot like law if it can depend so much on which particular person is in the court. It just seems at that point like all personal preference. Is she spot on here? Well, I think most people would agree with her, and I think Chief Justice Roberts would agree with her in part, but I think the spectacle of having justices sparring at each other in public in these speeches is not going to help the legitimacy of the court either. And, you know, she's not the first. I mean, uh, Judge Alito and Judge Thomas have spoken at conferences and tried to persuade others of the drift in the court. And the more those kinds of discussions get aired, then the other side wants to take some of that airtime and get some of that press and push back and suggest that a different vision of the court is more appropriate. So I think what Justice Kagan says is spot on. I don't think most people would disagree with her. They would just disagree as to the implementation or as to the application of her comments to what the court has done to date. She has said similar things during oral arguments about the importance of precedent. But this time she seemed to go a little bit further when she said the entire legal system is up for grabs whenever one justice leaves the court and another justice comes on. That doesn't seem a lot like law. Is that a swipe at Trump's appointees? Well, you know, I think historically the court has shifted on several different occasions because of the appointment of one justice. And clearly we saw a little bit of that threat under the New Deal and President Franklin Roosevelt. And we've seen it on the, the Warren Court as well. So I don't think it's anything new. That's kind of reality. It's just that we are in an era of greater partisanship. And that, again, is something that Chief Justice Roberts is not responsible for. But if he wants to maintain the legitimacy of the court, he has to sort of contain the wave of partisanship or politicization and try to stop that kind of perception that Justice Kagan was talking about. Because in reality, if you do have a very politicized court, appointment of one justice or two justices can make all the difference. And obviously, President Trump's appointments have made a very big difference indeed. Kagan outlined three key things courts can do to ensure the public will follow their rulings. Honoring precedent, consistently following constrained methodologies for deciding cases, and deciding only what you have to, which is something the chief has been a proponent of, the latter. But the chief said, I think just moving forward from things that were unfortunate is the best way to respond to it. So nothing's going to change, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, what Justice Kagan said is critical, and, and it's not that the court is stuck by precedent. Occasionally, it 
should overturn precedent and, and has. It's just that all of these cases have snowballed. We've seen so many changes of precedents and disregarding. We've seen so many times when the court has seemed to reach out to take a case when it didn't have to. And there are a lot of justices that have had inconsistent methodologies over the years, but these justices seem to have much more inconsistent methodologies than some. I mean, Justice Scalia was known for being one of the more consistent justices in methodologies, not perfect, but really admirable. And I think people had respect for that. And there are no comparable justice today that has such a consistent methodology. And that does take a toll on respect and institutional legitimacy. What's the real concern with the public not respecting the court when there's no danger at this point of packing the court and the public may not respect the court, but it's still following the law it lays down? Well, that's the question. I mean, when Bush versus Gore was decided, many people thought that this was a lawless decision. And yet, I think most people said, and indeed, I think Senator Gore said that I'm not going to challenge this. This is the Supreme Court. I disagree with it. There's going to be a peaceful transition in government. And the fear would be that what the court says wouldn't quell not only a senator's opinion, but the public's, whether the question is on vaccination, question is on abortion, question is on religion or gun rights. If people lose respect for a judicial decree, then the pronouncement by the court will have no effect and won't really sort of quell whatever kind of political divisions there are on a incendiary topic like abortion or gun rights. It's a fascinating historical you know, footnote. Many legal historians have looked at the whole question of integration and whether or not the Supreme Court's putting themselves in and sort of forcing integration in 1954 had a backlash and therefore actually slowed down the course of integration through the whole country. And similarly, it's possible that the Supreme Court's decision on abortion in a very different context on the other side of the political spectrum may cause a political backlash for the conservatives again. And obviously the votes in Kansas and some other early primaries are suggesting that it may have indeed. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Grant of the Chicago Kent College of Law. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization. We live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hundreds of miles from Washington, D.C., the investigation into criminal interference in the 2020 election by the district attorney from Fulton County, Georgia, may be the biggest legal threat to former President Donald Trump. Joining me is Michael Moore, the former United States attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner at Moore Hall. Senator Lindsey Graham has been fighting vigorously the subpoena from the Georgia grand jury. So the judge ordered that he can be questioned about alleged efforts to encourage Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger or others to throw out ballots. Tell us about her restrictions, though, on the questioning. She's a good judge. I mean, I think that she basically is recognizing that there would be some limitations under the speech and debate clause and sort of a broadly and just purely in slang terms, talking about legislative immunity for things done in furtherance of his job as a United States senator. If he was doing something in, in that way, that that could be limited and restricted from questioning by the DA. But she's not allowing him to use that clause and those privileges as a way to shield himself from any potentially illegal conduct. So you can't say, well, you know, for example, I'm a United States senator, but I called Jim Jones down the street and asked him to go rob a bank. I did it from my U.S. Senate office. Well, that doesn't mean it's protected under the speech and debate clause. You've made a call about some potentially criminal conduct. And I think what she's saying here is, Look, there may be specific functions that you have as a senator. You, know, you may have a legitimate basis to claim that some of the activities that you undertook were privileged, but this idea of putting pressure on a state election official is a violation of state law, and I'm not going to let you shield yourself from that. The 11th Circuit will ultimately, I gather, take it back up and they will review her decision now that she's laid these parameters out. And it seems to me like this fight right now is more about dragging things out than it is necessarily about whether there's a legitimate claim that he should or should not have to appear. You know, and in and full disclosure, you remember I asked and sent a letter to the State Elections Board right after his calls to Raffensperger, Senator Graham's calls to Raffensperger, saying he ought to be investigated for it because Raffensperger came out and said, I, I felt pressure. I was uncomfortable. And he, he made some very public statements in the media about how he took the call, as opposed to it being an inquiry about some legitimate legislative function. 
Um, and I think ultimately that's that's where she's going to let him go. Whether or not they'll have a circuit agrees with that, um, we'll see. But I really think probably once the, the message was sent, we want you to tailor the extent of his depth of his uh, grand jury testimony uh, down to something else. And she did that. It, it looks to me like they'll probably require him at least to appear. And so the restrictions she's laid out leave enough room for the Fulton County DA to get the answer she's looking for? Well, I think to get some answers. I, you know, it's a little bit of a speculation on what exactly she is looking for and how broad a net she's using right now. Uh, but I, I think that it allows her to ask specific questions about direction that Graham may have gotten from Trump or communications that he had with him about making these calls or making these inquiries. And that, to me, would be likely the most damning information to come out as it relates to her investigation is who told you to make the call? How did this come up? You know, what else were you asked to do? Who was involved in the decision-making process? Those kinds of questions about those specific calls would be, I think, enough to get her, if she's looking at potential election fraud, that seems to me to be a way to get there using the available evidence she has given the court ruling. But isn't what's likely to happen is, let's say Lindsey Graham does go to the grand jury to testify, Mm -hmm. and then she asks those questions, and he says, well, I can't because of executive privilege concerns of the former president. And then it sort of cuts it off. Well, my guess is that that question is going to be answered likely before he ever appears. I'm sure we'll see some 11th Circuit move. There'll be an appeal or request for further explanation or something to the 11th Circuit. And we'll probably know more about whether or not that's a viable objection. And the executive privilege claim is, as you know, even now after the recent hearing on Trump's request for a special master following the Mar-a-Lago search, the executive privilege claim is now back in play, at least in some respect, whether or not it's appropriately brought back in play under any serious legal analysis. That's another thing. But it's clearly been brought back in play whether or not a former president can assert executive privilege and whether or not the current president owns that privilege or whether or not the former president can shield all of his conduct under a claim of executive privilege even after he's left office. I'd like to talk about how broad the investigation is. The grand jury has sought testimony from this wide range of people, from a former publicist of Kanye West who allegedly tried to pressure an election worker, to the state's governor, Brian Kemp, who Trump tried to pressure. Do you have a sense for what this investigation encompasses? Because she has put together a team, including some uh, lawyers that have experience with RICO prosecutions and uh, sort of organized criminal activity investigations, uh, my, my belief is that she's looking to try to make this a bigger case than maybe it began with. And, you know, I think, and I told you, I, I feel like she had enough if she wanted to seek an indictment early on without going through the special grand jury process, she already had the tape record in play. And that's essentially a recorded confession, by and large, which outlines efforts to influence the Secretary of State. And so once she moved into a special grand jury process and subpoenaed all these witnesses, it seems to me that she's trying to tell a story about efforts by those within the Republican Party or certainly those within the Trump circle to have a broader effect than just the presidential election, but to have a broader effect on the state process 
whether that be as you as we talked about earlier in the individuals who are gaining access following a fake elector, whether it be in the designation of fake electors in the state, she's clearly going for a broader indictment or at least investigation than just on Trump himself. And it may be as well that she's made a, a decision, and we won't, we won't know this for some time, that she's not going to seek an indictment against Trump, that she could seek it against other players uh, and key individuals who may have been involved in efforts to essentially set aside or, or delegitimize the, the vote here in Georgia and in Fulton County. But this is the investigation that most legal analysts say is the most dangerous for Trump, you know, more so than, well, the New York investigation has sort of crumbled, and more so than a federal investigation that would she be going to all this trouble if she wasn't after Trump? I I think people have said that it may be the most likely to result in some criminal charges. I don't know if I would think it's the most dangerous investigation. She, She would have to come in and present a case specifically uh, involving the former president and have that case both remain in a state court, uh, which I think there's a federal statute that would allow the case, or at least would allow a motion to remove the case to federal court uh, based on on his position at the time as president. Um, So she would have to survive that motion allow the case to remain and proceed and actually get a conviction on the case and then have a conviction uh, survive an appeal. I also think that there would be a a plethora of pretrial motions that that you would see the Trump team and other people who may be charged use uh, to try to essentially cut her uh, criminal investigation and potential indictment off at the knees uh, if, if they get that far. And, and I think I think that's difficult. I think that, you know, indicting someone, a good prosecutor can, can get an indictment. And that's not necessarily a difficult thing to do because it's you and the grand jury and an investigator. And suddenly there's an indictment that, you know, comes out. And the joke is that a good prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich at that point. It may not be the right thing to do. It may not necessarily give everyone the most confidence in the system. But getting an indictment is, is not uh, the highest bar. Uh, in a criminal case. It's getting the conviction. And would she be able to convince 12 jurors um, from the Fulton County area that these, uh, that that Trump's efforts were in fact illegal? That's, that seems to me to be a a, a tough call, especially when you, you know, it takes one juror to uh, prevent a conviction and to, to hang the jury up. And so she would not be able to, to assemble a jury of, of Trump haters uh, any more than Trump's team, if he were charged and was sitting in the courtroom, would be able to assemble a jury of Trump supporters. You'll get a cross-section of people, and they'll have to listen actually to the evidence and, and make a decision about that. But that's that's if the case survives uh, what I think would be uh, pretrial motions that would, would head to the United States Supreme Court at some point, because these are, these are unique issues. We are in uncharted waters here. And... Um, and the magnitude, one thing that I did agree with the, the judge in Florida and her really little special master was the, the magnitude of bringing a case against a former president in, in this country uh, cannot be uh, overstated. And I think that's, you know, that is something that the appellate courts will consider um, and, and how the law would apply there, what this means going forward and all those things. So. It may be a case where 
you, you have a local DA that can get an indictment. The question is, can can that can the, the case survive an appeal? I I frankly think too that there's some I have some concern, and just as a general proposition, in local DAs being able to indict a, a president or former president for something that happened while the, the president was in office. I, I, I certainly don't agree with Trump's, Trump's conduct and what happened, and I've, I've been clear about that. But you know, it, can you imagine a, a scenario where uh, a local DA, perhaps along the Texas border, uh, chooses to, uh, after Biden leaves office, to indict Biden for something he said that he felt like was encouraging people to break the immigration laws? And whether or not that's a meritorious case or or not, and I would argue it would, it would not be, but it still places an enormous amount of power within a local DA. And I think that's why typically in these investigations, you want to see the Department of Justice take the lead uh, because they they really have the resources and the reputation. And, uh, and, and most of these are career prosecutors, not, not elected prosecutors, as we see with district attorneys. But these are career people with the department who either worked in the public integrity section or other areas for you know twenty some odd years that that lead these types of serious investigations and make decisions about whether or not to to bring these types of weighty charges as opposed to a to a locally elected in some county in some state in America. Um, you know, does this person have the? Do we want them basically being able to? To charge a, a president with with a, with a crime, uh, and, and it, you, you take it, and I would like to say that politics doesn't play into it. I, I think you can look at the investigation thus far, and it, I, I think the three blind mice could see that this was there's politics that's played into it. Whether we're talking about, you know, whether we're addressing how she sent out the target letters, or we're talking about the timing of subpoenas, and you know, asking to bring in a sitting governor of the opposite party into the grand jury a couple of months before a statewide election. I mean, I, I just think that some of the moves have been so transparently political, or at least to the public, certainly doesn't give an uh, air of confidence that it's not political. I think that's concerning. And so I don't know that you want a, a locally elected district attorney from the opposite party trying to take down a president or former president of the opposite party. And that's, that's why I like to think that the Department of Justice is the, the appropriate prosecution agency to, to review those kinds of cases. What's her case against the 16 fake Trump electors? You know, that would be whether or not there were false certifications that were made. Did someone submit documents that were and sign off on documents that were crafted to resemble a uh, elector certificate and submit those on behalf of the state? I think that prim- primarily is where she would be looking. And was there an effort to defraud, perhaps, the state or the United States in that effort? And I, I've heard, and, and again, I've not seen these documents, but you know, I've heard that there were some even notations that may have been made saying, I'm signing this, you know, in the event that the regular elector slate is set aside or whatever, almost as a backup. I think that's a little bit tougher case for her. But at the same time, she may be looking to put pressure on them to get them to give information in a bigger case. So she may be looking at them and say, we're investigating you and we may charge you with some criminal offense. We could offer you immunity if you give us information about who the mastermind was behind that scheme. Did that come from Trump? Did it come from his legal team? How did this come about? 
Did it come from a statewide elected official? Did it come from a federal elected official in the state? How did this information and this plan, you know, who, who gave birth to this idea? And, you know, what inner workings, I guess, went on behind closed doors to make this happen. So she may be using that as a way to, to exert pressure. That's not an uncommon tactic for prosecutors. That's why you see in oftentimes in drug cases, they start with people who may be on the low level. They start with the street level drug dealers and they arrest them and they say, well, we're going to send you to jail for the rest of your life unless you tell us who was up the chain. Then they get to that person. They say, we're going to send you to jail for the rest of your life unless you tell us who was up the chain. And so they get to those places where they think the, the decision or the sort of the genesis of the criminal conduct occurred. And that may very well be the purpose behind this state elector scheme. I think that it would be interesting to see what information these individuals had. And I really felt like the subpoenas when they were issued, that that's, that was the purpose of it. It was a pressure point that she could make. Thanks, Michael. That's Michael Moore, the former United States attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner at Moore Hall. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.